this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Harpal Sambi, who sold Careerify to LinkedIn, which ultimately got acquired by Microsoft, of course. So lots of things to listen for in this interview. I'd love for you to listen to how he decided to pivot from one product to the next, when he decided it was enough was enough. Also listen to his worst case scenario planning with his co-founder and how he thought through the downside of a possible breakup before actually having to go through that process. Um, There's a ton of stuff in here about negotiation and deal terms. So look out for uh, the talk about acceleration clauses, earnouts. So lots of good nuggets here to listen for here in my interview with Harpal Sambi. Harpal Sambi, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. So tell me about Careerify. How did this company come about? Yeah, so it's a, you know, I started my Careerify in that journey while I was in school, actually. I was doing a post-secondary school and education in electrical engineering up in Canada at a university called Waterloo. And during that time in 2009, as probably we're all familiar with, there was a big recession. Um, and uh one of the big things that was really striking is though I was at a really great school and my my friends uh, and colleagues around me, you know, during college and university, they also had really great opportunities to, to join the workforce. A lot of the people that I actually went to school or grew up with in my childhood, uh, given that I was born and brought in a poorer area in in, in my um, in 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 the in the city that I was born in. Um, didn't necessarily have the same opportunities, right? Um, they they ultimately weren't able to get the grades that they wanted because they were trying to support their family uh, while working and 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 uh, also trying to study at the same time. But they were really as as passionate, if not hardworking, than I did. So, you know, for the career fly, I looked at an opportunity. Whereas, like you know, in in this day and age, in two thousand nine. A lot of people predominantly applied by job boards, which is basically effectively chucking your resume through a black hole. But we all know that networking really works well. If you get your foot in the door, people can actually see the three-dimensional view of yourself instead of a bio that's seen on a resume. So I thought to myself, how do I really kind of broker those two connections together? So uh, connecting people to jobs, but really creating a personal element around that. So we started off career five out of my dorm room and really kind of focusing on the the ambition where we can kind of quantify through algorithms uh, how to 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 you know understand what the soft skills are, what the cultural skills are, and what the technical skills are of a candidate, creating a again that three dimensional viewpoint of a candidate, and providing that to a uh, to an employer through an algorithm by matching them and, and creating scores around it. Uh, so that was kind of the first iteration around career five. Uh, we ended up uh, failing miserably, given that dur- again during the recession we were bootstrapped. Um, no one really wanted to pay for job postings, so we kind of really then focused on the B two B space, which is really trying to empower employees to be part of the recruiting process by leveraging their referrals. So that's when the the product really changed dramatically. And maybe describe the product as if I've never seen it before. What was the the second generation of the product? Yeah. So essentially, the the product kind of morphed into that business to business application where we'd sold, sell to businesses. And the whole adage is very simple. Um, the employees that you hire, you want to hire more of those employees, especially those you know grade A employees that you want. But typically, it, it's, it's really challenging for that grade A employee to understand, A, what jobs are open at your company, unless if they're directly managing those jobs, and B, who in their network could be a good fit. 
So as an example, if John is working at a company and John sees some jobs open, he may not necessarily know the 40, 50, maybe 100 jobs that are open. And conversely as well, they may not necessarily know who in their network could be a good fit. So what we ended up doing is we would say to the employee, John, to connect their Facebook, their LinkedIn, their Twitter, their graphs essentially online, um, and, and be able to kind of then analyze who those connections John have, and then be able to match those jobs internally that John's company is hiring for, and ultimately come back to John and say, hey, John, you have three friends that could be a good fit for this marketing role in your company. Have you ever thought of that? And that, that little email that was sent to John and every other employee in the company would often provoke them to say, hey, that actually makes sense. Let me go out and reach them. And then by virtue, you know, the, the benefits are threefold. One, the company gets uh, a cheaper cost per hire. They're not using agencies. Uh, they're getting a better trusted, a trusted referral because their employee can self-vet. Uh, for the employee, they might get uh, you know, a, a little bit of a perk or a cash bonus for, with a referral, but more importantly, they're working with their friend. And for their friend, you know, they're, they're really being able to um, get a better job and work with their fellow colleague. So I, I think that's essentially what the value proposition that Careerify then provided, which then created a, a stronger product market fit than our initial idea. Really cool. So tons of questions, but let me just make sure I'm, I'm getting it right. So let's say I'm uh, Ford Motor Company. Let's say I'm Ford, big company, and I want to reduce my cost of, of acquiring talent. And I've got a thousand open jobs right now. I might use Careerify to uh, have my employees help me source people just like them based on their social footprint. Exactly. And, and so I might subscribe as Ford Motor Company, the HR department of Ford might subscribe to Careerify uh, to, to, to basically do that. Is, am I getting that right? So the, the economic model is you're, you're basically selling a subscription to Ford, the company? Correct, yeah, based on employee licenses. So it was a, a software as a service that we built. And uh, you know, subsequently we had um, small businesses to large businesses using our systems. Uh, we had a, over a quarter million users across 40 countries that spend companies like Deloitte, Unilever, SpaceX, uh, Blizzard Activision, uh, Groupon, uh, and so on. Got it. So you said 250,000. So, sorry, 250,000 users. And Correct. how many companies did that uh, equate to? You know, that, that approximately equated to about uh, four dozen uh, Fortune 500 companies. Got it. Okay. So you've got roughly 50 Fortune 500 companies, big companies, and, and was the play to license it to them to, uh, as a large enterprise? Uh, so, so it was mostly a large enterprise offering as opposed to SMB or SMEs? Offering. Definitely. I mean, I think there, our smallest customer was about 50 or so employees, uh, but there is this um, uh, uh, you know, exponential effect effectively where you get the more employees you have, the more stronger the network the company has, and by virtue, the more jobs that they also might be hiring for. Uh, so the value exponentially increases as you have more employees in, in your company. I guess the flip side, though, and, and I'm sure you guys thought about this, but but I guess the flip side is also true. So so let's say you're Ford. I don't know how many employees Ford has, but let's say they have 200,000 employees. At some point, you, when you have so many employees, you basically got the universe of employees. So you've got good employees, bad employees, drunk employees, <laughs> drug addicted employees. Like you've got everything, right? So you so that whole birds of a feather value proposition starts to disintegrate, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think you can look at it in both ways. Um, one is it uh, it might help with diversity. It might also hinder diversity. I think if you be explicit with your employees to say this is who you're looking for, um, it often helps them narrow that down. And obviously, through technology, you'll be able to kind of help that. So as an example, I'll give you one way that how our algorithms really kind of help define um, certain aspects of a persona that you would want to hire. So let's take sales. Um, sales as an example, you might need someone to travel 30 to 40% of the time. And it's sometimes really hard based on um, first blush, maybe, you know, on a resume, whether or not this person is going to be keen to take on a specific job that requires extensive travel. So what we did as an example is we would go into John's Facebook, obviously through his permission at that time, and uh, be able to look at all of his friends that maybe like to travel. So if you know your friends had tagged a photo in Egypt, maybe they went to Africa, maybe they also have you know um, had a couple of friend requests or went to school in in Europe. 
we then kind of get a little bit of a persona of this individual that they might be not adverse to travel versus someone else that might be adverse. That's um, cool. So that's essentially how we would leverage uh, the, you know, the various algorithms and base the social data that people applied and provided on, on the social networks out there, whether it was Facebook or LinkedIn, to ultimately then come back to John to say, hey, you know, you have a sales job, requires 40% travel. Your friend, Brandon and Susan, could be a really good fit because they like to travel as well. And oh, by the way, they're in sales with your competitor. Um, so why don't you refer them to this particular job that's in, open in your company? You know, there's a lot of, I want to dig in a little bit into the conversation about when you decided to, to shift or to use an overused term, pivot the, the product and make this fundamental change. Because there's a lot of uh, folklore, uh, you know, mythology, I guess, in the world of entrepreneurship of never quit, right? Colonel Sanders pitched the Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe to like 500 people before someone bought it. You know, like there's that idea that you just got to keep banging your head against the wall. But in your case, you guys made a fundamental shift to the product. I mean, how did you know that it was the right time to, to basic change horses and, and, and switch up? Well, I, I think there were micro and macro economics that kind of put into play here. One, uh, during the recession time, there were employees that were being laid off in thousands. Um, small businesses were not necessarily hiring. They were downshifting or becoming bankrupt. So it was really prevalent to us that, you know, a, a, a marketplace where we would create a job board uh, where we required our customers to pay for jobs where they were were ultimately uh, laying off hundreds or thousands of people, uh, it didn't necessarily align properly. And in, in order to even do something like that, you would then need enough capital to sustain that uh, to, to for multiple number of years in order to kind of get over a recession and then be able to position where people are now, you know, um, finding all the candidates on your job board, so to speak. Uh, so that was like kind of like the macroeconomics, and then the the microeconomics is really around product market fit. Uh, you know, we would talk to our customers, and they said, "Hey, this is great, but there is a company called LinkedIn that has you know millions of profiles on this on their system uh, that's ever updating. What benefits did you have?" And we were not necessarily able to quantify that. Uh, so much so that, you know, they would shift their budgets from like a LinkedIn or a Monster or an Indeed to ultimately to our solution offering as well. Uh, so we we looked at that. We looked at the, the fact that we were completely bootstrapped. And in order to kind of monetize, you need to have customers. And if there's no customers knocking on your door, um, sure, you might have the best chicken recipe out there. But if, it, if no one's buying, you got to switch to turkey, right, um, or beef. Uh, so, like, essentially, we had to kind of go down that path, and it was radical. You know, I think at one point we were eight days before going bankrupt, uh, but we were able to pull it through and then uh, and shift from one segment to the other and be able to then uh, ultimately get product market scale and uh, – and, um, and 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 really drive and create value for our customers. I, I got to ask, how did you pull it out of the, the fire with eight days left to go before bankruptcy? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we, we it was a mad scramble. I, I vaguely remember it was it was really much of a haze. The the last uh, the last uh, 30 days before we, we had that eight days remaining, um, you know, luckily we had one of our customers um, really see the value that we were trying to offer in terms of our, our, our product that we were trying to deliver, meaning the employee referral software. Um, they ultimately said yes at the last second. Um, you know, we, we I, I flew down to a whole bunch of customers that were just kicking at the doors, kicking the tires, and uh, ultimately showed a little bit of vulnerability and, and said, hey, look, like, you know, if we don't necessarily, you know, pull through, um, you know, we might not be able to make it and uh, you know that might scare a lot of customers but there are some people out there that want to to believe in you and they they see what they have and they were able to make it happen who's are you at this point doing the selling are you the person who got the first 50 large enterprise customers yeah so we are you know being bootstrapped we were extremely lean and we focused a lot on automation so at the time of our acquisition which was at 2015 we were actually around 11 people um, so extremely small company. We had, you know, again, 250,000 users across 40 countries and uh, revenues in the millions and profits in the millions as well, given that we were bootstrapped and extremely cost effective. Um, so ultimately, if it wasn't engineering, I was doing everything. So I would do product management. I would do quality assurance. I would do sales. I would do customer service. 
I would do janitorial work, accounting work, anything and everything possible to kind of make it happen until we were at that point where we added our, you know, first big customer that signed a, a you know, a five-year multi-million dollar deal. And we're like, great, now we can start to hire some marketers and then we can hire some other people as well. Um, but yeah, initially, uh, you know, often salespeople or customers really want to hear founders uh, and they want to hear the vision as well. So we, I was often brought into a lot of the deals. I was going to ask you that because I mean, for those of you who don't know Waterloo, Waterloo is like the MIT of Canada. It's, it's, it's full of propeller heads and engineers and super smart people, but not really known for generating a lot of salespeople, right? Like this is, this is not where you, you would, you would find your charismatic traditional kind of, uh, if you will, uh, perfect salesperson persona. This is where you're going to find super smart people. But but you were you a sales guy before going to Waterloo, or did you like did you grow up selling? Like, how did you learn those skills? Yeah, I I, I just um, I think it just uh, part luck, but also just really trying to uh, understand who you're trying to sell to. So having empathy and sympathy, I think, is is something that I, I had a keen eye when I was younger. I mean, I remember when I was five years old, I wasn't able to, you know, buy Habba Bubba, the five cent piece of gum. Uh, you know, my parents were uh, very fortunate to have a couple of jobs, but, you know, they weren't able to provide me allowances that maybe other school kids did. Uh, so I ended up um, rebranding Fruit Loops or, um, you know, a box of cereal and put them in baggies and sold it to my neighbors uh, as, as Harpal Loops. Um, just to kind of be able to kind of get to that point where I was able to buy that piece of gum. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that that na- that innate hustle kind of came out early on, uh, especially during my, uh, you know, ability where I, I see someone having something and I was like, well, why can't I have that? And then I understand that the barrier was either maybe cost or maybe it's effort. And then I went back to the drawing board. I said, OK, in order to do this, I have to do this. And I, I just end up going for it. Um, so I, I think you're right on in, in the sense of like generally engineers may not be the best salespeople. I certainly don't think I'm the best salesperson, but you know you kind of have to you know really understand your your customers and be able to uh, talk like them. And in order to do that, uh, you know you, you need to spend a lot of time and effort uh, to understand their exact needs and pain points. And once you start to do that, the barriers typically come down. Got it. Got it. Got it. And when you talk about bootstrapping the company, I mean, how did w- like what was the capital structure was it you did you have founders did you have an angel investor like what was the how many investors did you have in the business so i had a total of one which is my dad um uh, my dad was uh very fortunate uh to uh, again uh you know being an immigrant he came from uh nothing to having a house and and living a middle life uh, or upper middle class like life uh just through hard work um, and he basically gave me a loan which was the house uh, and you said, hey, you know, I put full trust in you, but if you screw up, you know, just know that we're not going to have a house the next day. Um, so that's essentially the parameters that I had uh, to kind of work together uh, with my dad and, you know, and 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 really try to drive the business uh, from nothing to something. Wow. How did that feel having the family house, given the family circumstances that you grew up in? How, how did that, that must have been, how did that feel? You know, especially when we had eight days left, it felt uh, it felt pretty nerve wracking. I think, you know, most and foremost, when I when I was at that brink of potentially going bankrupt, I was really thinking first and foremost of my employees and the fact that they may not be able to provide food uh, and shelter. And then, you know, I then started to think about my family a little bit, but that gave extra motivation. And not only that, I think. You know, at CareerFi, we were relatively transparent with our employees as well. Um, you know, I, I told a lot of the key employees that this is happening well before it actually ended up having, you know, key countdown the days. And it was very surprising and refreshing to see them kind of buckle up and say, hey, I'm also going to provide additional hours just to contribute. So whatever we need to do, we need to get it done. Um, so often during that, you know, when you're faced with adversity, uh, you know, I, I was very blessed to have a family that still was, you know, with me to the end, uh, just as we were about to hit that tipping point. And conversely as well, just uh, also having um, really phenomenal employees, phenomenal girlfriend at that time, which is now my wife, uh, just all having a great support structure to ultimately get to that point. But yeah, it was definitely difficult during those times. And 
don't certainly don't uh, recommend any entrepreneurs to go down that path uh, because it is uh, quite honestly a little bit of a uh, you know a, it, it really creates a lot of stress and, and and sometimes even depression as well. How did you structure the deal with your dad? I mean, was this a handshake deal? Was it a true loan, meaning here's the money, uh, give it back to me, or was it an equity? Was it a convertible debt? Like, what was the structure? Yeah, it was, it was convertible debt. Um, so nothing, no interest uh, outside of an exit itself. So he, you know, he got friendly terms uh, once we did decide to sell our company. And so, can you describe what for folks who don't sort of are from maybe familiar with convertible debt, what, what exactly that means? Yeah, so essentially um, they would have a discount on the valuation that they put it in for. So let's say my dad provided me with a check of $100,000, um, you know, it, he would get, you know, whatever valuation at that time for 75 cents of the dollar instead of um, of um, the a dollar for dollar, so to speak. So he would gain um, the appreciation from that uh, from a convertible note point of view. And then um, for at that time when we raised that valuation, um, anything that we sold afterwards, he would get a little bit of a multiple as well. So you've got one investor, your dad, and, uh, and, and it's just you and the company along with your 11 employees. You didn't have a co-founder per se. We did actually have a, a, a great co-founder early on. Uh, but as I explained, like during that pivot, uh, you know, we were kind of at that cradle where we're like, Hey, is this business going to, you know, stain or not? Um, you know, we were actually, uh, uh, working out of his one bedroom apartment uh, with seven of us. Uh, so it was really tight, uh, tight knit uh, employee and, and family life that we were kind of living there. But uh, I think just generally, he looked at his economic situation and said, hey, I can't even afford rent anymore because I'm taking virtually no salary. We're not making any money. I need to kind of go back and take another job. So uh, we left in phenomenal terms, um, but that being said, you know he had to look for look out for his family, respectively. And I said, okay, very much, uh, you know, I'll continue to go on to that process on my own. And it was tough, right? I mean, having no co-founder, you know, sometimes you want to say something or think through things, uh, and you have to kind of, uh, you know, tiptoe your way because you can't sometimes disclose everything to your employees or to your family members or to you know to to your entrepreneur network because they may not necessarily understand the full um, issue at hand. So he so, left. He left. Mm -hmm. You know, the company from a from a salary perspective. Did he also give up his shares, or did you buy them out, or did he yeah. have them right to the end of the uh, the acquisition? We, we ended up buying him out uh, during that time. And how do you decide what to buy him out for? Like, we, what, how do you value the company? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great thing, and especially given that we were bootstrapped, we had no outside investment, therefore we didn't have like a, a, a litmus of, hey, this is what our valuation looks like. We, we mutually kind of came together and to say, okay, this is what the valuation could look like. You know, he had his rationale, I had my rationale, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we were very much, uh, you know, really strong friends and we said, okay, this is what we need to do. Um, he understood that, uh, at that time I wasn't able to pay him out immediately. So we said, okay, this is what it would look like for, you know, year one, year two, year three. Uh, if I'm not able to pay you out, you know, you, you'd continue to increase in your value, uh, as a quote unquote, a loan to us. Uh, but eventually we were able to pay him out full, outright. Got it. And and how how big a gap between your valuation and his valuation was there when you first sat down? I mean, were you guys on the same page or were you like, were there zeros between the two of you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty straightforward given that we didn't have much revenue at that time. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the odds on us was we were going to fail and we were going to fold. Um, so I think generally we, we took it very objectively. We put all of our personal stuff aside and gained... I, you know, I've had instances in not in this company, CareerFi, but in a other company before, uh, where you know sometimes um, you know egos kind of come in together, or you know there's a, a misunderstanding on on the agreement that you have, and it's it's hard to kind of make amends. This was very much outright that you know how I kind of built the company, being mindful of that one lesson that I had before that any kind of partnership that I would have with a co-founder or with a, a partner, third-party partner. Uh, that would resell our software. Um, you know, we kind of did like a post-mortem before we even engaged with each other. So we said, okay, how do we kind of figure this out? 
uh, if things don't go, uh, you know, if they don't go the way that it's supposed to go. Uh, and if you build your contract that way, um, it's a lot more black and white when it actually does happen. And, you know, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it does go down that path where you have to decide to part ways. Uh, but in this case, for us, it was pretty much uh, extrapolated on our on our contract to say this is what we'll do from a valuation standpoint. So it was uh, pretty civil. It was very civil. Uh, we had no issues whatsoever. Interesting. So you had you had contemplated what happens if it doesn't go well even before starting the company. Yes, uh, I do that for various aspects of all, of all my life. Actually, I, I think uh, you know whether it comes to building products, building you know employment agreements. Uh, you know, we, we kind of look at it and say, hey, like, what what would happen if you if it doesn't go right? Uh, and again, I, I think that's like the one big thing that I've taken apart from all my experiences is communication and transparency are very key. Uh, if you don't have proper communication and you don't have the transparency, then chances are a lot of your business deals sometimes go awry because of those specific areas. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so I want to get into the acquisition. So you built the business up. I, I know we have to be a bit careful in terms of, of, of specific numbers, but millions in terms of profit uh, and revenue. What was the impetus be, uh, for you to want to sell the company? Like, what was the triggering event? You, you know, I, I think um, that there are three aspects or three things that came to mind and when I looked at the acquisition, I did a post more on those as well, uh, when you think about retrospectively. And I think any of those three alone wouldn't necessarily tip the scale. But I, given that all three of those factors kind of aligned at the same time, um, it all kind of told me that this is the time to sell. Uh, so number one, I think we were growing really quickly. And this is a a great scenario for a lot of companies, but at the same time, you in or when you're growing really quickly, um, it results in having to expend a lot of additional capital upfront in order to kind of sustain that growth. So what do I really mean by that? So we went on a period where we we brought on you know one of our first big customers, which was like Rent a Center. Uh, that company was you know about twenty thousand employees, and then within I would say days we 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 got Deloitte as a customer, and they're like you know that pilot which was supposed to be at one thousand employees ended up becoming seventy thousand employees, and then a month later we ended up getting Unilever, and they're like hey great we're gonna pilot you out of India and UK instead of US or Canada. And very quickly, our support, which is traditionally North America, expanded to multiple time zones. We had to kind of build development for multiple languages. Uh, we we have all these just additional enterprise requirements, and we grew so quickly in that kind of that manner that again, being a 10, 11 person company, you don't you can't necessarily sustain that unless you're working 24 hours, and even then, you're not necessarily being productive. So at that time, I was looking at it to say, okay, we need to go out and raise outside investment. So we 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 knocked on doors of investors and venture capitalists. Uh, you know, the the trials and tribulations are very much the same that, that any other entrepreneur talks about. You know, we 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 had a lot of interest. We were raising, uh, I think it was like five or six million dollars at that time in terms of a, a, a round. Um, and we we got through most of it, and uh, that happened to be where I, I got introduced to LinkedIn. And one of the individuals there that was an angel investor that sold his company to LinkedIn the year prior to this. Um, so that's essentially how we kind of start to kind of have a relationship with LinkedIn because we wanted to go out and raise, and that individual was an angel investor. So, so that was like, yeah. So when you say just one for clarity, you you got to five million in terms of an investment round do you, you mean you got commitments for five million did the wires didn't come in maybe just clarify if you wouldn't mind yeah definitely so that's uh uh we we were raising our five million dollar round we had about 80 percent commitments at that time uh, but then uh, we got introduced to linkedin and then we started to kind of talk about the acquisition path got it and so um, what, what was the growth rate of the company at the time like in terms of top line revenue I, it would probably be in the tens of thousands because I think, you know, um, we went from essentially in a year and a half, we went from like zero to millions in revenues. Okay. Uh, so it, it, was, it was just really high growth that we ended up having. We got one or two customers and very quickly our customers became our ambassadors and advocates. They started to refer our software to, uh, to their respective employee, uh, to their community. And then people just start to eat it up. Got um, it. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so you mentioned things growing like stink. It's you're going through this investment round. You get introduced to LinkedIn. Well, was there a second or a third reason that you thought it might be the time to sell? Yeah, I, there was two others. One was um, we built our product in someone else's backyard, and what that Sorry, means. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, you know, we we built our product to leverage Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter APIs. So when John, the employee, comes in, the, he would have to use Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. And you know, the connection that you have with Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook can change based on their discretion, right? So if they wanted to shut you down, they could shut you down hypothetically. Um, so we were, you know, back then in the days of like 2011, 2012, 13, um, you know, a lot of companies were kind of growing at exponential rates like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Google, et cetera. And they would build out these APIs, which are essentially connectors that allow people to build on top of them. But what we didn't know necessarily is if you grow really quick on their, their platform, they might say, hey, I might want to get into this space because you're making a lot of money and there is an opportunity there. Um, so you, you see similar companies like Hootsuite, you know, which is a marketing uh, technology company uh, that also had um, you know, solutions that they would build on top of various other companies. Um, and you would have to spend a lot of time in building business relationships with them and uh, you know, you know, and and spend and invest a, a significant amount of capital in that relationship in order to ensure that you don't necessarily um, get them upset one way or another. So I think you know that whole notion of where we were not we had to rely on someone else's technology in order to sell uh, made it a little bit of a crutch in the sense that if they took that away, our value of our product would diminish. Um, so I think that was also kind of a, a you know something that crept into my mind over and over again uh, during you know at the time that we were trying to sell is to say okay how do I go from a company that's generating millions in revenues to tens of millions or to hundreds of millions in revenue um, you know am I it, it, you know can I you know continue to appease the the my relationships with my partners that I'm leveraging their technology to extract value to or conversely is there going to be a point where they shut me down. And third, uh, the, the other perfect storm that I would have was I was actually getting married and I got married 45 days after my acquisition. So, uh, you know, having a 450 person wedding and trying to organize that and and, you know, start to live with someone and build a life together. I think all three of those things kind of came together where, you know, when I was looking at the opportunity of either a raising a venture round and building out a sales team or B, um, getting an opportunity to join a, a really great company like LinkedIn or uh, the four other suitors that, that, that provided term sheets to us, um, it was like pretty black and white in my opinion to say, okay, let's go and, and you know start writing a new chapter in my life uh, by getting acquired, uh, building a life together, and then at the same time, take those lessons learned for another company that may happen in the future. Got it. So you decide to make this decision. You're in conversations with LinkedIn. How did you get the other three term sheets from other companies in addition to LinkedIn? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, you know the one thing that I spent a lot of time on is to build relationships in the network uh, in, in my community, right? Um, and it's not necessarily that I was looking to sell. It was more from a resale opportunity. So often I would be, I would know the heads of business development or corporate development or heads of product at these various technology companies. And I would say, hey, look, like, you know, you provide value A to your customer. I'm providing value B and we're not competitive. Is there a way where we can bundle these things together? So by virtue over the years of being in the HR technology space, uh, developing those relationships with those people. So when it came to a time where um, uh, we, we ended up getting an offer from from LinkedIn, uh, or we're sensing that we had an offer rather, uh, we ended up really quickly going ahead and saying, hey, um, you know, head of so-and-so, you know, we're, we're get, drawing interest. You know, we may not necessarily have this relationship in the future. Are you interested in buying us um, or, or, or going down that process of, of becoming more aligned together? So uh, th th that's essentially how we start to quickly draw together. And, uh, you know, we had we put out feelers and we ended up having four other companies bid for us. How many how many feelers did you put out relative to the like, was it like how many of the feelers actually translated into LOIs? I would say close to 10 to 12. So uh, to ballpark, you know, you're talking to 12 heads of corporate development and you got four feelers. So that was the rough conversion rate. 
Yeah, it, five, five, five to ten to twelve. Yeah, so it was like a forty to fifty percent conversion rate. Got it. Okay. So, how did you ensure, or did you ensure that in sending those emails, you you didn't sort of tell the world you were for sale? It's a very delicate situation. I think um, the the best thing for me was really to jump on a call. Um, so it, you know, a it's not recorded anywhere. And and two, I I didn't necessarily position it as a sell. I I positioned it as a a stronger alignment, as they call it, and I put that in quotes. Um, but I, I I explained the situation to them. I said, look, like you know, we're looking to we're in the process of raising and 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 going through this process. Uh, but that being said, you know, we've also realized that we're we have strong engineering excellence, but we may not necessarily have a sales force. So you have a sales force. Is there a way where we can kind of mutually align together here and? Uh, corporate development people are very smart. They know what that means. Uh, we also told them that we had outside interest uh, from you know large players as well. And naturally, that gets people inquisitive one way or another. Did you use the name LinkedIn? No. Uh, we were forbidden to obviously bring uh, just with our uh, you know offer sheets in general are are confidential, and um, you know they might have non compete clauses or non shop clauses as they call them. So. We were uh, we were very cautious and cognizant of not revealing any names or alluding to a specific name. Got it. So you get the four letters of intent. What's the difference in terms of valuation between the low and the high? I I would say there was probably about a you know twenty percent difference, um, maybe thirty. Uh, they they got structured different ways, and I think you know that's the there was a lot of variables that kind of came into play. You know, one could be more upfront cash, one could be uh, more uh, of an earnout or a longer commitment. One could be uh, more promise on on vision and autonomy uh, versus uh, you know integration. There was a lot of factors. Some some people were like, hey, we just want to uh, buy you and you know your key employees, and we don't want to necessarily have a, a an operating company out of Canada because most of these players, actually all the players, were in the U.S. at that time. Uh, so there was like visa situations as well. So there was a lot of different kind of um, different variables that we had to play with. Um, but all in all, I think uh, from a strict valuation perspective, um, you know, for uh, for the company, it was about twenty to thirty. Interesting. So how did you evaluate the the pros and cons to each of the offers? I, I think there was like a, a a rubric, and I'm trying to jog what specifically the rubric that I had created at that time because I wanted to be as objective as possible. I think naturally when it comes, when you have multiple suitors, uh, you build certain biases, i.e., you know, you have those relationships that you have in place and it'd be like, you you always think about yourself. It's like, I have really great beers with this guy. It'd be great to like, you know, continue working with them, right? Um, so I, I tried to really become objective and, you know, I think uh, valuation was one. I think culture was definitely something that I, I, I really pride on. So as we went through that process, I spoke rule I, I i interviewed them more so than they interviewed me on on what the culture was uh, i wanted to ensure that our employees had like a phenomenal time uh, they had phenomenal perks they had phenomenal um, ability to grow within uh, the respective companies so i kind of really probed those opportunities because naturally they're going to look your employees are going to look to you uh in terms of whether this is a success or if this is a failure or conversely is this something to be really excited about that you know we're it's 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 almost a no-brainer to move your entire families from one country to the other. Um, so I, I think that's essentially the, the, the another variable that was really key. Uh, autonomy was something that I, I really looked for as well because I, you know naturally some of uh, us would be in leadership positions to kind of either build a product or build multiple products uh, within the company. So really trying to get a better sense of that. And then just general understanding of company, uh, of the specific acquirer, uh, what what are their positions look like, um, you know, what what are their cultural values look like and ethics look like, and and that also helped with determining whether or not uh, one was better than the other. What were the deal terms that that you felt really passionately about? I'm thinking earnout, cash versus stock. Like what what were those? How were you kind of thinking about those? Yeah, I, I definitely think uh, being a first-time entrepreneur, uh, you know, we indexed a lot more on cash than uh, autonomy. Um, you know, I think. What, what does that? Sorry, what does that mean? Uh, as in, like being able to control your destiny and future once you get acquired, right? Because I think naturally everyone thinks about the dollars, but they don't necessarily think about what happens next. 
And are you, you know, if you do have an earnout, do you have an opportunity to achieve that earnout, right? Uh, so I, I think that's something that you know we definitely looked a lot hard on uh, to say, okay, if if there was a number in mind where we once we got acquired, we would have to fulfill a certain amount of revenue. Uh, and we had to rely on a Salesforce that we didn't know, how is that going to be achievable? Um, so we we definitely took that into consideration. And also, again, like really kind of looking at the intrinsic kind of deal terms, meaning uh, culture, uh, you know, what what life would be if you had to move uh, is, is is relocating from Toronto, which is really cold to Silicon Valley. Is that a, is that a positive or a negative? Right. And kind of going through those motions as well. Uh, especially if you're trying to move families around. When you talk about earnout, uh, I'd be curious of, of the four letters of intent, and, and maybe you can't talk specifically about LinkedIn, but perhaps you can talk generally about the four. What what proportion would have been kind of cash, and, and what proportion would have been earnout? And, and if it varied by all four offers, I think a lot of people would be curious to know, sort of, is is should they also expect a, a very heavily weighted earnout deal where you know 80% of the value is on the come versus the inverse where they're going to get most of their money up front in cash like we're all four kind of similar in terms of their their cash versus earnout component or were they all over the map i think one was uh, out of out of order uh, but most of them kind of follow generally what silicon valley and tech companies want to do i mean i think naturally they want to retain talent so they're Going to be more incentivized to backload a an a, a specific term uh, for both the employees and for the company and the key employees there. Uh, so you would see more of a proportion where it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a maybe a third sixty six or maybe it's like forty sixty, you know, front versus back because they know again that you know this entrepreneur or group of founders or key employees, if you give them all hundred percent upfront there's virtually very little incentive for them to continue to to move forward with that company and to drive uh, a, a stronger story that they're trying to sell to their customers or shareholders. Um, so I think that that definitely kind of was very similar in terms of the backloadedness that, that we saw. And how long an earnout are, are these things usually? Yeah, we, we saw, you know, anything from two to four years. Uh, you know, I think, uh, again, now, like the you know, for traditional SaaS companies and in the Valley, you're seeing standard three to four years. Some companies are going longer now uh, because they realize that, you know, certain key talent that uh, can help build is not readily available in a talent pool for recruiting purposes. So when you do buy a company, you want to retain them as much as possible. Um, so you're seeing longer, longer earnouts, uh, frankly, at least in the, in the technology space. And did you push for a bigger proportion of cash up front? Yes. Uh, you just never know what's going to happen in the future, right? Um, and and I, luckily, this didn't happen to me. And LinkedIn's a phenomenal company, uh, you know, as is Microsoft now as well, given that Microsoft acquired LinkedIn. Uh, but I've had friends where, you know, they got, you know, a, a three-year earnout, and after three months, they were, you know, dumped to the, to, to the sidewalk. Uh, because I think, you know, they didn't necessarily see eye to eye, and they had a clause on that where they didn't necessarily negotiate something where they said, hey, if you fire me, then, you know, we accelerate that earnout altogether. Um, so I think that uh, is something that we saw quite often. Um, so we were cognizant of it as well when we were going through the acquisition process. So what safeguards did you put in place that if, for example, LinkedIn said, like, we're firing you, what safeguards did you put in place that would protect you guys? So. Thankfully, we 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 didn't have to. Uh, we we forgot about those, and this is kind of like lessons learned, so to speak. Uh, because after the fact, you're, I think you know entrepreneurs, especially when I was going through it, I was so enamored with kind of like specific deal terms that I ne didn't necessarily think about the secondary or third aspect. So you know things around acceleration. So uh, you know your earnout can be accelerated if the company gets acquired. Now some people might negotiate that, some people don't. And in my head, I was like. LinkedIn is a $36 billion company, uh, market cap company. They're not going to get acquired. And sure enough, like a year and a half later, market conditions, et cetera, um, you know, they, get, they end up getting acquired. And, you know, the vision that you kind of shape with your, uh, your buyers might change drastically. Um, so I think, you know, in hindsight, we were really lucky that we had such a great acquirer that, you know, they valued who we are uh, and also they 
they continued kind of the progression of vision of what we're trying to generally do uh, that we didn't necessarily have to um, exercise or even have those 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 discussions. But that being said, in hindsight, you know, when you actually do the deal and then you compare notes with other entrepreneurs, you say, whoa, wait, hold on here. Like you got something we were able to negotiate. Like if they fired you, you get everything up front. That's great. Right. Or, you know, if they get acquired, then, you know, you get a full acceleration clause on that. Uh, why didn't I think about that? So I think those were kind of some of the lessons learned that I had in retrospect when I, you know, if I told myself a couple of years ago to say, hey, this is what you should take a look at. I might have done things a little bit differently. Yeah, great insight. And again, I think it's pretty common when you think about LinkedIn, pre-Microsoft, it was a huge company. People wouldn't necessarily have thought maybe that uh, that it was an acquisition target and, uh, and lo and behold, it, uh, it was. Um, how has, uh, one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you about was, the, you're, you're the author of a book that talked about social uh, and the importance of social in, in hiring and, and generally in HR. Um, you know, how, how important was it that they got Harp Paul as well with the deal? Like, did, did, did you get the sense that LinkedIn wanted you personally as the author of the book, as the nameface of the company, the, the namesake of the company? Like, was that part of the, the consideration? Definitely for some of the, uh, term sheets, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think given that we were a smaller organization, um, uh, that scale, like they, they looked at our, like traditionally all of our acquirers or potential acquirers looked at us and they said, how are you making so much money with so little employees with no funding? Like that was generally the first th thing that they often talked about. And after they saw the numbers and they, they vetted them and we provided them a data room uh, just to kind of look at these numbers, they were, they were really shocked of how much we were able to achieve with so little capital. And I think generally employers, would want to think about that and they want to have that ability. Um, so it was definitely um, maybe not so much the book. I think, you know, they, they definitely saw the book as, hey, we're, we're getting someone as in the founder that had thought leadership, uh, that had a strong, you know, network that that can really have a lot of understanding of who we're trying to sell to. Uh, that definitely played into consideration there. But, uh, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, it was it was definite that uh, they said to, you know, they want to kind of keep the team together and, and they want to ensure that we could continue to scale and, and drive on excellence of engineering and product while, you know, someone else can kind of, quote unquote, outsource the, 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 the sales and customer service aspect of it. I'd love to ask you a question personally, what it was like to go from, in your own words, growing up, not having enough money to buy bubble gum to all of a sudden having a lot of money. Like, how did that Im impact you personally? Truthfully, it didn't. Um, I, I thought it would. And there was times when I, you know, we, we, we signed the deal. I was like, I'm going to buy a Porsche or Ferrari. And, you know, I, I had those kind of thoughts for a split second. And then I came back to my roots of saying, well, you know, what did my parents teach me? They said to work hard, uh, not to, to really kind of, um, be, you know, uh, be humble with what you get and what you receive from the earth uh, and what you what people are going to provide to you. So I, I think it really quickly kind of went from like, hey, you know, I have a lot of money to now, like, let's just continue to live the way that you live. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, I think that in itself helped ground me a lot. And uh, it's helped me significantly when I think about doing angel investment deals uh, and understanding, you know, who I'm sitting across from, are they, uh, you know, going to be very, uh, are they going to really kind of quickly expend all their money and, or they're going to be frugal and, and conscious about the dollar? Uh, such that, you know, if I make an investment, they're going to really take care of the company and, and be mindful of what decisions are making. Uh, so I think in hindsight, I'm still... Although I may not be struggling to 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 purchase bubble gum, I'm still very much the same person from where I was when I was five years. Harpal, can you describe for me the scene of you telling your dad that you wanted to pay him back? There, there was there were a lot of tears. Um, that's for sure. Um, you know, I was extremely grateful for the opportunity that my dad gave complete faith uh, in in me. Uh, and putting his family at risk, right? Um, 
you know, you know, my mom, my myself, my uh, my dad, uh, my sisters uh, who were married at that time, um, you know, they he just put complete utter faith in there. And you know, for me to kind of come back, you know, he he at first was just like, you know, this is this is just a little game. He's not going to ask for much, but I kept asking for more and more. And that you know, five thousand dollar loan became fifty thousand, then became a hundred thousand, then became a quarter million. And he's just like, I don't have enough money anymore, right? Um, so I, I think that uh, that day when it came by, um, he, he was just so utterly proud of me, uh, and vice versa. I was just so proud to to be able to pay him back, and uh, and to to provide for the family. Um, it, it just was just a phenomenal moment. How did you do it? <laughs> you know, they they were they were actually. Um, they they didn't really believe me that I was actually getting acquired um, because they they often thought my dreams were so out of whack and out of tune, right? Like you know, I I would often tell them when they gave me the five thousand dollars that turned to fifty thousand dollars, I was like, I'm gonna pay you ten x, right? And you know, I'm gonna make millions. And they're like, sure, sure, like keep doing whatever you are trying to do. And you know, I think when I when I told them, they didn't really believe it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when I showed the check and the, and the terms and, you know, as I was going through my marriage at that time and, and planning a wedding, um, they realized really quickly that I wasn't necessarily involved in some of the key decisions that happened during a wedding time. They knew something was really serious there. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, when I when I did show them that check, um, there was a lot of happy tears all around. And, you know, they were ultimately so proud of me and vice versa the other way around. What a great story. And um, I'm sure you have a lot of want, people wanting to kind of follow up with you. Is there a place that that people can 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 meet with you? I'm assuming you have a LinkedIn profile. Maybe you can uh, let people know how what the best way to connect with you is. Yeah, definitely. I think you can definitely find me online. Uh, LinkedIn is a phenomenal network. So please continue to use the system. Uh, you can you can connect me with me on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle is h sambi h s a m b h i. Uh, or feel free to shoot me an email. Um, as well. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you might have as well. Our Paul Sambi, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.